0: Um, I had a lot of trouble preparing to, to teach this morning, and I love to teach. And preparation is normally a joy, but I confess I had a lot of trouble. I had asked several of you to pray for me, along that line. I thank you for doing that, and I hope your prayers were answered. We'll we'll see. Um, I prefer to teach through you know a text because it's there, and and you you work with the the material. And when you've got to come up with something, I'm anything but creative. Uh, It wasn't for lack of the attempt at preparation that I had any trouble. I was doing my work, you know, going through the, not just the motions, but doing the things I need to do. I'd had my Harmony of the Gospels out, and I'd read two or three times through, you know, each of the Gospel accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection. And I got my Bible dictionary out and my dictionary of theology, and I was looking up the issues of resurrection and death, all those good things that would apply to today. Still just having a terrible time. Uh, Just not feeling like I could get a handle. And I've shared with people, you know, for me, kind of like a newspaper reporter, you've got to get an angle on your story. You've got to get something that allows you to lay hold of it and therefore to present it to others. And I just was not having any luck doing that at all. Really, into the middle of this week. And uh, I finally resorted, you know, to that thing that you say for last. Oftentimes, uh, I prayed. Yeah. (laughs) I joined you in praying about uh, the teaching this morning. I'm kidding, sort of, I do pray regularly, but I I committed myself to kneel down until I'd heard something from God, and and as I knelt there and was praying, I felt like God was giving me some thoughts and some images and some phrases were going through my mind, and one of them that just really stuck uh, came from a guy who's quoted very, very frequently, just a rare sage and philosopher from the last century, someone who's quoted uh, very, very often. And it's one of those phrases that he had said that was going through my mind, and I was convinced God was saying was the theme for this morning's teaching. And you've probably heard some of the other uh, phrases that he was famous for, um, this philosopher and sage. One of the things he said about the future was, he said, it's deja vu all over again. (laughs) He said, the future ain't what it used to be. You guys are slow this morning, or you don't know who this is from. Uh, concerning the observation of life, he said, you can observe a lot by watching. (laughs) And the esoteric elements of time and space, he said, it gets late early out here. This is Yogi Berra, of course, and none of these are the phrases I'm playing on this morning, but the quote that came up as I was praying was this one. It ain't over till it's over. It ain't over till it's over or in a little better english it's not over till it's over i'm going to give you a few examples of it's not over till it's over we've talked about presidents and leaders recently and i'm going to talk about a couple more just as examples you don't have to remember too far back to a presidential election in which a statement was made that proved absolutely false and i remember the statement being made by dan rather on cbs news gore wins florida And, of course, if Gore won Florida, he'd be president today. But he didn't win Florida. And Dan Rather was wrong because it's not over till it's over. There's a great photograph. uh, Many of you may remember this, and it's from another presidential election, 1948. I love it. Well-known photo. Harry Truman holding up the morning newspaper after Election Day. Do you remember what it said in big black? Dewey defeats Truman he didn't defeat Truman, and Truman was gleeful holding up this newspaper. Truman had been given no chance of winning that election, none at all. The pollsters had said right up to the day, it's not does he lose, it's how badly does he lose. And so the newspapers had confidently printed up their headline before the votes were tallied. They made the mistake because it's not over till it's over. Now an example near and dear to Kevin Wiberman's heart going to the sports scene, you don't have to stay in politics for this, Uh, in the opening game of the Kansas City Chiefs in 2002, opening game of the NFL season for them, they played the Cleveland Browns. Do you remember this, Kevin? (laughs) John probably does. Anyway, Cleveland Browns are ahead. It's the last play of the game, and Kansas City's quarterback, Trent Green, has the ball. He's going back. And Daryl Rudd of the Cleveland Browns sees Trent Green being tackled. So he turns his back to the action. He takes his helmet off and throws it in the air because he knows the game's over. Trent Green's tackled, and they've won. But guess what? It wasn't over. Because it wasn't over. Trent Green, as he's falling, pitches the ball to John Tate. And John Tate, this big offensive lineman, grabs the ball, runs downfield towards the goalposts, and with the unsportsmanlike conduct assessed against Darrell Rudd, Kansas City is put within field goal range with no time on the clock. They kick a field goal and win the game. And Darrell Rudd didn't know what Yogi Berra knew, which was, "It ain't over till it's over. It's not over till it's over." Now this is a this is a favorite theme too in the Scriptures. In fact, if you start thinking about the way this plays out in story after story in the Bible, I mean, it's overwhelming. If you think, just a few things, think of Israel leaving Egypt, you know, time after time, it looks like there's no way out. I mean, from the very beginning. Remember, they're trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, and it looks like it's all over. But, of course, it's not over. Or, once you get into the period of the judges, they've got time after time where superior military forces come in to defeat Israel. Gideon's army is probably the best example. And what does God do? God takes 300 curly little uh, Israelites, and defeats thousands of Midianites. See, the Midianites thought, we're good to go. This thing's all but over, but of course, it wasn't over. Another theme along this same line throughout the scripture has to do with women giving birth to children. I know this is a big swing, football, (laughs) military, childbearing, but this is another theme throughout the scriptures about women giving birth to children, or the hope of women, giving birth to children. In fact, if you think of Jesus' own genealogy, his is a genealogy filled with odd circumstances around births and difficult and, in fact, impossible births. And remember, for Jewish women especially, uh, having children, this, this was the role of a wife. It was to have children. Remember that for the Jews, life was all about life on earth. The promised land was in Israel. Jews were not typically thinking about heaven by and by. Our home up in the sky far away. It was blessing on the earth. And so, for Jewish men and women, the desire of any married couple was to have children. And you remember we've looked at the story of Ruth before, how important it was to have an heir. For the man, his name was carried on through generations through having descendants, And women, every time a child, and especially a son, was born, the thought was, maybe this will be the promised Messiah. And for a woman to be barren, for a woman not to be able to produce offspring, this was just a terrible, it was a fiasco, it was a disaster, it was a a point of disappointment and shame, really. Um, Think about a few of these stories. Uh, Think of Sarah and Abraham. You remember God had actually promised these two a son. And the years rolled by. The promise was made at 75 years old for Abraham. 75 years old. Dan, he's getting up there. (laughs) But you know, Sarah has no children until she's 90 years old. 90 years old. Yeah, we wouldn't wish that on anyone, would we, Tammy? Or Rebecca, Sarah has Isaac. Isaac marries Rebecca. Rebecca goes years without being able to have any children. And it looks like, It's going to be over. They're going to die childless. But you remember God had made a promise to Abraham, your descendants, through Isaac. They'll be as countless as the stars in the heaven, the sand on the seashore. But here Rebecca's going along, and there's no fulfillment. But eventually, she prays, come to think of it. And God does bless, doesn't he? And he gives her twins, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob's favorite wife, same thing. No kids. Imagine this for her, too. The women around her are dropping babies like melons off trees, right? I mean, Leah, Billa, Zilpah, they're all having kids, but not poor Rachel. And it's getting old, and her years are going by, right? And it looks like it's over, but it's not. And then she gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin. Going a little further, think of Hannah, Miss Hannah. Think of Hannah in 1 Samuel. You know, here's this godly gal married to a husband who has two wives, and probably Penina, his other wife, probably was married so that he would have descendants because Miss Hannah could have no children. And the years are rolling by, and for her too, it looks like life is over as far as having kids, but it's not. And she has little Samuel, and she says in a prayer, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 5, she says, talking about the way God was working and moving, she says, those who were full hired themselves out for bread. Their story wasn't over. It changed. They were full. Now they're hungry. But those who were hungry ceased to hungry. Ceased to hunger. Those who were without, now they get. And she says, even the barren gives birth to seven. Seven is a complete number. Perfection. Seven could mean seven or seven times seven. But she who has many children languishes. See, in each story sort of, it looked like it was over one way or another, but it wasn't over And fortunes, futures, change. In fact, if you go all the way up to the New Testament, do you remember how the New Testament begins, Will? It begins when that angel comes and talks to that gray-haired, wrinkle-faced old priest in Jerusalem, Zechariah. Remember, there's been 400 years of silence, prophetically speaking. 400 years where God hasn't spoken. And then this gray-haired old priest, wrinkles on his face, no doubt, up in the temple. One time in his life, he's in there with the incense, and an angel appears and says, Old man, you're going to have a son. Now, I'm telling you, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, they're like Abraham and Sarah. They're not just old, they're really old. There's no way they're having a child. For her, you can imagine, she's gone off through all the tumult, up and down, gosh, hoping, 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 eventually the years roll by, and she finally says, okay, it's not going to happen. Looked like it was over, but it's not over until it's over. And this old woman and this old man have, John the Baptist, of course. In each case, in each of these women's lives, life had come and gone, and they thought their life was over as far as having any kids. As far as they were concerned, their wombs were dead and barren, and their days were going to end without the joy of children. But in God's economy, it's not over until it's over. And each one of these gals has children, sometimes part of Jesus' own line. Now, moving this a little closer to Easter, remember Isaiah 52 and 53 are some of the better-known passages in the Old Testament. Uh, Mel Gibson uses them for the front end of his movie, The Passion. And they're well known because they are so explicit and so specific concerning the suffering of God's servant, his suffering servant, the Messiah. Isaiah said these 800 years before the time of Christ, let me read a few verses out of Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, or by his stripes, we are healed. All of us, we were like sheep. Having gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered... He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. That's Isaiah 53 up through the first half of verse 10. Now, this vividly, accurately portrays absolutely the events of Good Friday. Isaiah 52 had closed with those remarks about his visage. His form or face was marred more than any other man. And here we've got very explicit God is crushing him, God is pouring out his anger and wrath against one who had done no wrong. This is Good Friday. It's crucifixion, it's death, it's blood, it's depressing. And you take this would-be Savior, and he dies on a Roman cross, the most ignominious kind of death you could suffer. There was no lower way to die. There was no Easter on Easter. There was no lower way to die than to be crucified. And so his bloodied, torn corpse, taken down from a cross, wrapped up in the cloths of death, the linen wraps of the dead, and buried in a tomb. And so if the story ends on Good Friday, it's a really depressing story. But of course, it's not over till it's over. Look at verse 8. If you happen to be in Isaiah 53, it says, As for his generation, who considered? This, this rendering uh, is different in various translations. But the thought is this. Here's Jesus, dead on the cross, who could consider or describe or identify or tell of his generation, that is, his descendants, his posterity? The thought is this guy who dies under the judgment of God dies with no descendants. No one can declare his sons or grandsons because they are non-existent. In the Jewish world, remember, in the Jewish model, to die without Posterity, that was kind of the worst thing that could happen. This is why the law went to great provisions to provide a man with descendants, even if physically they didn't come from him. His brother could have children in his place. Here's Jesus dead on a cross with no descendants, and therefore, in the Jewish world or mind, no hope. The worst way to die. This bloodied and crushed one, this one God himself crushed, died with no apparent hope for the future. He had no descendant, no posterity, and therefore no form of life after death, as it were. It really did look like his story was over. But as another philosopher and sage of the last century said, God had the rest of the story in mind. Now listen to the end of Isaiah 53 and verse 1 of 54. Let me read again from verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Listen to the next phrase. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. This one who's dead with no children will see offspring, and he'll live again. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. He will see the result of the anguish of his soul and be satisfied. Do you know what the fruit or the result of the anguish of his soul is? That would be you and I and all who've trusted in Christ. In Isaiah 54.1, 54 does change gears because it begins speaking more of the nation, but remember the context here. Shout for joy, O barren one. You who have no children. This is the context. This closes up Isaiah 53 and clearly has ties to Jesus himself. Shout for joy, barren one. You who have been cut off, you without a generation, without posterity. You who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting. Cry aloud, you who have not travailed, travailed in childbirth. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman. Jesus was the barren one. He was the desolate one. He was the one cut off in death and buried in the ground without any children. But God said, you will see your offspring. You will look on the result of the fruit of your suffering and you will be satisfied. Because the barren one, the one who has no children, will have more children than anyone else. If you think about this, spiritually, every man, woman, and child, ever born again, ever saved, ever destined to heaven, every one of them traces their conception, as it were, to Jesus Christ, to Good Friday, and to Easter Sunday. It's to Isaiah 53 and 54. You, you know, spiritually, God has no grandchildren, none. None. You come from Christ, or you don't belong to the Father. There are no spiritual descendants beyond one generation. The fruit of Jesus' suffering is every man, woman, and child that's ever been saved. The barren one, the one cut off in judgment, is the one with more children than anyone else ever. And it's not one or two, it's not even twins, it's millions upon millions. In the, the words of John in Revelation, it's myriads upon myriads. It's just like looking at the ocean, the waves going back. Those are the folks Christ redeemed. Christ the barren one, the one with no children. He has more children than anyone else. On Good Friday, it looked like Jesus' story was over. He was like a woman who's grown old, advanced in years, and approaches the end of her life without any kids. Jesus Ann looked forlorn, beyond hope, but like Sarah, who was too old to have children, Jesus, the crucified one, the one cut off in death without a posterity, ends up with his own generation, with his own children. He died cursed on a tree. He was cursed by God for our sins wrapped in the clothing of death, buried in the ground, dead for all the world, dead, really dead. But he rose because death wasn't the end of the story. Death was the beginning. Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate end, and as you know, it's also the ultimate beginning. In fact, when you think of uh, the fairy tales, remember how they all end? And they lived happily ever after. Happily ever after, that's just a way of starting a new story. And Jesus' death and resurrection, it's not just the way the story ends, it's the way the story begins, the bigger the better story, as it were. I want to tie this to our own lives here in a minute, and in doing so I want to talk about people who knew Jesus, people who witnessed that terrible event, the scourging, the flogging, the crucifixion and the death on Good Friday. You know, it's always easy for us to read the gospel accounts or Israel's history or whatever and say, why didn't they get it? Why didn't they believe? Jesus told them he'd die. Jesus told them that he'd be raised again, but they didn't get it. But you know, when we start applying this to ourselves, it gets a little closer to home. Do we believe what God's told us? Let's walk with a couple guys who knew Jesus personally. They knew him. They probably witnessed the crucifixion. And on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday, they don't know about any resurrection. They're walking home. They're walking home with their tail between their legs, so to speak. Whipped dogs. Luke 24 says, Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things which had had taken place. It came about while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. The the resurrections occurred, but they don't know it. And this guy who joins them on the road, he's just another guy on the road as far as they can see. He said to them, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Clopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem, unaware of the things which have happened in these days? Don't you get it, man? What things, he said, tell me about it. And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people. How the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping, notice past tense, we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. In other words, it's three days after the event and we have no hope. We had hoped our hope is gone, it's over. He died, it's been three days, and and you know what? We're, We're going home. This gig's over. The story's ended. So we're going home. And then Jesus says, Foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? You should know better, guys. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. These guys think the story's over. They think the crucifixion and the burial, that that's it. They don't know. It's just beginning. And of course later, you know, he's tricky this way, isn't he? You know, the way he gets to us. Later when they get to their little place and They're having some bread and he breaks it and he blesses it and then they see who he is and all of a sudden he's gone. And all of a sudden these guys, these poor whipped pups who were walking home with their tail between their legs, they turn around at night and they run back to Jerusalem to tell them we've seen him and he's alive and they find out a few others have too. The story wasn't over because it wasn't over. Now, related to salvation, I haven't talked about much theology here related to salvation specifically. There's no salvation without Jesus' death and resurrection. None. You know, if Jesus doesn't die for our sins, and we've talked about this recently because we've been in John 3. If Jesus doesn't die for our sins, pay our penalty, we have no hope. There is no salvation. Remember this, John 3.16. Why did the Father give His Son, because if He didn't, there's no way to be saved. Jesus' death and resurrection was for us. It was so God could forgive us. He couldn't otherwise. And Jesus, He not only had to die, because you remember, sin brings death, there must be a death, and there must be an innocent death to cover our sins. He had to die, but He also had to rise again. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise, you guys are dead in your sins. The implication is, if Jesus didn't die, the debt wasn't over and death was not conquered. Jesus' resurrection was the guarantee, as it were. It was the promise that death is conquered. Payment's been made and accepted. And so Jesus, the one who's made the payment, is free to rise. Judgment's been fully met. He's good to go, and so are we. And that's the theological component of Easter. Death and resurrection, we needed them both, and we've got them in Jesus. But beyond that, resurrection and Easter every year, or every day we think about these things, or every time we remember the Lord and the Lord's Supper, these are reminders to us that the story's not over until it's over. And even when you and I... Like those guys walking back to Emmaus, we think a story or some component of some aspect of our life's over. It's not over unless God says it's over. Till He counts the vote, so to speak. In God's economy, it's not really over until He says so. For God, it's always further up and higher in, and the rest of the story is always being written. Now I've shared some Yogi Berra quotes. I, th- I find them humorous and, and pithy, and, but true at the same time. And we've said a lot of things that are, are frankly, just uh, platitudes. Um, but if we, if we bring this home to ourselves, like those guys on the road to Emmaus did, and we say, what difference does this make in my life? What difference does Easter make in my life? And let me ask you some questions, questions I ask myself. What's your life look like? How's it going? Are you and I living like those disciples going home to Emmaus? Because hopes we've entertained in life look like they've come and gone. Do you feel, maybe, that you've passed milestones in your life in which you thought you'd be someplace that you're not? You thought that you'd have successes that haven't come. You thought that you'd be making money that you've never seen or you'd have popularity or success or something in some way. And the days have rolled by or the weeks or the years and they haven't happened. And you die a little bit because it seems like, Lord, where are my dreams? Where are my hopes? Do you feel like Sarah sometimes? I've been waiting for kids and they've never come. Does your life look like, does it feel like at times Jesus looked and felt on Good Friday, death, burial, the end of dreams or the end of hopes. Easter Sunday is a reminder that whether it's in this life or the next, and I want to emphasize this more later, this life or the next, you and I have time and eternity for Jesus to write the rest of our story. In God's economy, it never really is over. It never really is over. In fact, in Revelation 21.5, Jesus says, I'm making all things new. Think about the future. Isaiah, in some other passages, says God is going to take this world you and I live in, in which most of our dreams and hopes reside. He's going to take this world, and it says he's going to roll it up like a scroll that's been read and pitch it. Or he's going to take this world that we know in which most of our hopes and dreams reside, he's going to roll it up like a garment, an old worn-out garment, and pitch it. This world in which most of our hopes and dreams reside, it's going to end. It's going to be over. But, of course, its ending is just the beginning of another one. Jesus says, I'm going to make everything new. You remember he says, there's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. So the end isn't the end. It's not over. It's just the beginning of the rest of the story. And we start over. I feel like oftentimes, in life especially, we're like uh, folks who go to God and we say, God, paint, uh, paint our portrait. Take a picture. You know kids sometimes will say, take my picture. You know, I'm going to stand right here, frame me up, make a nice 8 by 10 and this is what I want it to look like. And we go to God and we say, take my picture. And this is what it'll look like. And God says, "It's too little, too small. You're not creative enough. You know, we go to God, the ultimate artist, as it were, and we say, give me an 8 by 10. And God says, you know what? I've got the universe and I've got eternity. That's my cloth. That's my easel and my canvas. And you want to settle for 8 by 10. It's not big enough. It's not big enough. Time, life on this earth is not big enough and it's not long enough for God's plans for you and I to be accomplished. If we set our hopes, short-sightedly so, just in this earth and in this time in this life, they're not enough. People talk about reaching your potential in life, in this life, you never will. It's impossible. You can't. You know, they say we use about 10% of our brain or whatever. Even if you use 50%, there's no way for you and I to become the people. Christ died and rose to make us in 70 or 80 years, as we wrinkle with age, by the way. Can't happen. Not enough time. God says He's got time and eternity. Uh, you remember last week I invited you guys to join me in repentance. Remember we talked about this as a change of mind. Not so much trying to work up a kind of sorrow, That oftentimes produces nothing anyway, but a change of mind, a change of the way we think, to think things over again, to come to grips with the way things really are. This week, starting on Easter Sunday, I want to invite you to join me in taking your treasured hopes, your unfulfilled dreams, your hopes for yourself or your children or your friends or whatever. And giving those to God and saying, God, you write the rest of the story concerning these things. God doesn't need our permission. He's going to do his thing anyway. But you know what? You and I are freed when we do this. When we take to God our life, our hopes and our dreams and we say, Lord, here they are. I'm giving them to you and I ask you who know better, who have time and eternity, to make of these hopes and dreams what you want. I give them you and let God write the rest of our stories, our hopes, our dreams. When I said this thing about eternity, we really need to take that seriously. If you think about this, uh, better women and men than you and I have left all. They've given up home, families, fortunes, reputations, you name it. For Christ's sake and in His name to share the gospel and to serve Him in one way or another. And many of them, in return, in this life, have received disrespect, imprisonment, beatings, sufferings, mutilation, and death. Guess what? If their hope was only in this life, their life ends on Good Friday, dead and buried. But all of them, if you read in Hebrews, it says they died their death. This short life on earth that ended for them. It says, guess what? Not a problem because they have a better resurrection. God says your life on earth was short. Don't worry about it. You know, Jesus's was short by our standards. Don't worry about a short life on earth. These guys who left all for Christ look like they were losers cut off, lost all, God says to them, I'll give you a better resurrection. I'll give you a bigger, better life in eternity than you could have imagined on earth. Don't worry about it. So for you and I, you know, if we're thinking it's all got to happen in this little, short speck of time we've got on this doomed earth, we've got to lift our eyes. We've got to look past Friday to Sunday, and we say, Lord, death isn't the end. My death on the earth, that's not the end. Death is only the beginning. I love Egyptian history. Just absolutely fascinating. And in that great epic movie of yesteryear, The Mummy, (laughs) the Egyptian priest has it right when he says, Death is only the beginning. You know, the Egyptians went to great lengths. You look at the pyramids. What are those? You know, they're a tomb. But they were more than a tomb, a place to bury. They were a place to live, right? Because the pharaohs, they were getting ready for eternity. They were getting ready for the next life. They believed the end wasn't the end. They believed death was just the beginning. And in that sense, they were absolutely right. So my thought for us this Easter, this Resurrection Sunday, is for us to take our dreams. Think of yourself as a little old woman, and maybe you are. (laughs) And maybe life has come and gone, and, and we haven't had the things we thought we'd have. And life hasn't been fulfilled the way we wanted it to be, and hopes and dreams have look like they've they've died, perished, and been buried. But let Easter remind you, death is just the beginning. It ain't over till it's over. And in, God, in God's economy, it's never over. He's always writing the rest of the story for you and for me. You know, Deanne's mom, again, what a great day to die. What a great day for her family to know that on the special day that we remember resurrection. In Jesus' resurrection, her mom has gone home to be with the Lord. If you are unsure of where you're going when you die, if you're unsure this morning, what better day for you to make sure than Easter Sunday than Resurrection Day? Jesus died on the cross so we didn't have to. That's the bottom line. And he says to all, you know what? Here's my hand. I had a brother one time who told me The gospel was God says to man, love me or I'll send you to hell. That was his view at the time. It changed before he died. I said, no, you got it wrong. The gospel is God saying to man, I've been there. You don't want to go there. Take my hand and I'll take you home. So if you're not sure this morning where you're going, make Easter your resurrection day, the promise of your future with Christ. And if you are, take those hopes and dreams, those desires for a posterity, for kids and grandkids and a name, so to speak, and lay them at the feet of Christ, the one who conquered sin and death, the one who is the Lord of heaven and earth and of life and of eternity. and We'll let him write the rest of those stories. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I think of Jim Elliot's words this morning. He's no fool who would give up what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. Father, I know that every dream, in fact, every tear shed you collect in a bottle, you love us so much that you gave your one and only son your treasure, Lord. You crushed him. You cursed him so that he could become the father and the mother of myriads upon myriads of people just like us, Lord, who would be born again, death into life, death being only the beginning. Father, thank you. It, it blows my mind that Jesus looks at us, the results of his anguish, and is satisfied. I'm not sure I would be satisfied, Lord, but he is, and you are, And, Lord, help us to take these lives, these few years you give us on the earth, help us to lay them at your feet. Help us to give you the things that maybe aren't going to happen in this life on this earth. Help us to give you the things that maybe we've already lost, maybe things that in this life we can't regain or recover, or hopes for the future, Lord, for ourselves or for family or friends. Lord, help us to take all these things and give them to you and trust you to write the rest of the story and all these things, Lord. Thanks that Peter says no hope set on you can be disappointed. Lord, we set our hope this morning, this Easter Sunday, on you. We ask you to write the rest of our story. Lord Jesus, thanks for dying for us and thanks for rising again. In Jesus' name, amen.